It's Sunday, January 6th. Happy New Year. On the show this week, Western alienation hits the road next month as hundreds of truckers plan to drive their big rigs all the way from Alberta to Parliament Hill. We'll talk to the leader of the United Conservative Party, Jason Kenney, about what more the Alberta government can do to help the oil patch. Then, what are some of the geopolitical hotspots for 2019? We'll ask a foreign policy expert about what we should be watching for and what we should worry about. Plus, as the United States prepares to bring home troops from Syria and the Middle East, how will it affect Canadian troops deployed far from home? I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block Podcast. Western alienation hits the road next month as hundreds of truckers plan to drive their big rigs all the way from Alberta to Parliament Hill. Organizers say the convoy is in support of the oil patch and to put pressure on the federal government to fast-track pipeline construction. The Trans Mountain Pipeline project right now is on hold as the Liberal government conducts court-ordered consultations before they can put shovels in the ground. Premier Notley says she doesn't expect construction to begin until next fall, long after Alberta Albertans go to the polls. So what more can Alberta do to speed up this process? Joining me now from Calgary is Jason Kenney, United Conservative Party leader of Alberta. Welcome to the show, Mr. Kenney. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Mercedes. My first question for you, you're heading into an election year. You've talked a lot about what you would do differently from Rachel Notley, but specifically when it comes to pipelines, how would you have handled the situation differently? How would you have gotten pipelines built? Well, I think the huge mistake that Premier Notley made was writing Justin Trudeau a blank political check, creating an alliance with the Trudeau government that has uh, done everything it can to prevent us from getting a pipeline built. Prime Minister Trudeau, who vetoed the Northern Gateway pipeline, killed Energy East, surrendered to Barack Obama's veto of Northern Gateway, and has completely bungled the Trans Mountain expansion. Um, and she, gave, she imposed a carbon tax on Alberta, supposedly in exchange for market access, a pipeline that hasn't worked. So I think what we need to do is pull the camera back and, and understand we're involved in a strategic fight. There's been hundreds of millions of dollars spent, largely from foreign uh, sources, in a campaign to vilify Canadian energy, not Saudi or Venezuelan or Russian oil, but Canadian oil. And I think we need to push back much more vigorously. That's part of my fight back strategy. So how do you get around things, for example, like Quebec saying no to Energy East? Do you push the federal government to force the province to let it through? Do you ignore the court order that has put Trans Mountain on pause? How far do you go to make those pipelines have shovels in the ground? Well, first of all, it's the federal government of Justin Trudeau that killed Energy East with the acquiescence of the not the NDP here in Alberta. Uh, and, and no, the, the, Trudeau, the federal government doesn't need to push it through against provincial uh, objections because under the Constitution, the federal government has the uh, exclusive jurisdiction over interprovincial pipelines. Now, the new uh, premier of New Brunswick, uh, Blaine Higgs, is trying to get a revival of the uh, failed Energy East pipeline. Um, he's saying, uh, and uh, what Justin Trudeau... Quebec is saying no way. There's no way they'll allow it to go through. Because Mr. Prime Minister Trudeau said to, uh, that it will only happen if the government of Quebec is in favor. He gave Quebec a veto it does not have under the Constitution. And then Premier, um, uh, the, the Premier of Quebec said uh, that he was going to, uh, that there was, quote, no social acceptability for dirty Alberta oil the same week that he got a 10%, $1.3 billion increase in equalization payments. So at the end of the day, Mercedes, what we would be prepared to do in Alberta is to put on the table uh, the whole question. Uh, 
question of equalization in the country. Albertans are generous. They don't mind sharing some of our wealth when times are good here but bad elsewhere. But we, what we cannot abide is other parts of the country that benefit from our energy wealth, in turn trying to block its development and export. That is not acceptable, and we need, to, we need a fair deal in this federation. When it comes to that Western alienation that you're talking about, I interviewed the Prime Minister at the end of 2018, and he said politicians such as yourself are using this as a wedge point, that you're exploiting that frustration, and it's, it's essentially making things worse. What's your response to that? Look, this is the Prime Minister who drives wedges everywhere he can. He's the Prime Minister who, uh, when Prime Minister Harper was in office, said that the country was a mess because, quotes, Albertans were governing the country. This is not... Look, I, I think that we have an opportunity here to reinforce national unity. Albertans don't mind sharing some of our wealth uh, as long as our partners in the Federation are willing to actually develop that resource, our oil and gas, to get a fair global price for it. We've been in a, a period of prolonged economic... Uh, stagnation and decline in Alberta in the past few years, partly because Canada's largest export product, the third largest oil reserves in the world, Alberta oil, has been sold at, at, a, fra at a, a huge discount compared to the global price. That's partly because we cannot get to global markets with the coastal pipeline. All we're asking Mr. for... Mr. Kenny. Yes, Mercedes. Well, when, when it comes to that frustration, though, there's been some undesirable elements that you're seeing trying to attach itself, some through the Yellow Vest movement. Uh, you're a former minister of immigration, and some of these statements are racist, they're, they're xenophobic, they're anti-immigrant. Are you worried that that frustration could be exploited by some groups who have uh, some pretty concerning values? I'm not exactly sure what you're referring to, Mercedes. I can tell you in the, in the last few weeks there have been uh, multiple huge rallies with thousands or collectively tens of thousands of Albertans uh, calling for fairness in the Federation for uh, a coastal pipeline to be built. Um, perhaps amongst those tens of thousands of people there were a handful that, that with kooky ideas which anybody would, which I would certainly condemn. Uh, but uh, that doesn't change the fact that Albertans right across the political spectrum are simply asking for fairness in the Federation. This is not a free, this is not a marginal uh, a political uh, a goal. This is this is the I think something that's in the best interests of all Canadians. I also would like to ask you about China because this was something you spoke a lot about when you were at the federal level. Uh, obviously, very tense relationship right now. Do you think that the federal government should be doing more to see the two Canadians who are detained released? Well. I can tell you, having dealt with consular affairs as a federal minister in the past, these are often delicate uh, matters. It's it sometimes uh, behind-the-scenes diplomacy is the most effective approach, but sometimes you need to uh, be a little bit more voluble. Uh, I don't know the, the, the details of these cases. So I'm going to have to leave it to the best judgment of the uh, Ministry of Global Affairs, uh, but I, I think it does, you know, Weakness invites weakness, and uh, other countries need to understand that if they effectively kidnap Canadians, that, that, that there will be repercussions. We just have a couple of seconds left, but do you think Canadians should be careful traveling to China right now? Well, I think Global Affairs has already given uh, a, a travel advisory to that effect, and, and uh, uh, I hope that we can restore uh, uh, good commercial relations. That's important. Uh, but um, obviously, Canadians who, who might think they would be vulnerable wherever they travel have got to be mindful of those facts. Jason Kenney, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mercedes. The purpose of a delegation is uh, to engage with uh, Chinese officials, to meet with uh, business leaders, to meet with representatives, 
of NGOs and others uh, to talk about uh, the important uh, bilateral relationship between Canada and China. That was Alberta Conservative MP Michael Cooper. He's part of a bipartisan parliamentary delegation that's heading to China this weekend, despite strained relations between the two countries as two Canadians remain in detention in China. Late last week, the State Department issued a travel warning urging Americans to exercise increased caution in China. And in a study released late last month by the Council on Foreign Relations, there is a note about potential conflict in the South China Sea as one of the geopolitical hotspots of 2019. Could that spell more trouble for Canada? And what are the other hotspots we should be keeping an eye on? Joining me now from Washington is Paul Stairs, Senior Fellow for Conflict Prevention and the Director at the Centre for Preventative Action at the Council on Foreign Relations. Paul, what do you think of this group of Canadian lawmakers who are travelling to China? Is it a good idea when tensions are so high between Canada and China right now to go over there and try to mend fences, or would it be better to send a signal and refuse to go on this trip? No, I think it's very important to engage the Chinese now to show that uh, this kind of uh, behavior, this sort of tit-for-tat response is unacceptable and it has to be dealt with in the appropriate manner. And so I think it's uh, important that uh, this delegation goes ahead and it's important, moreover, that the United States stands firmly behind Canada and the Europeans do too. I know the United States has put out a travel risk advisory for American citizens going to China, warning them there can be arrests. In Canada, there's been pressure on the Canadian government to maybe up the warning that exists here. Do you think it's safe for North Americans to go to China right now? Uh, I think, yes, it's basically safe. They have to be exhibit some caution and uh, avoid any kind of uh, contentious or uh, controversial behavior when they're in in China and not go looking for trouble, but otherwise they should be perfectly safe. Now, China is one of the big hotspots that you identified. What makes it so dominant as an area and a country that we really need to be looking at in 2019? Well, it's uh, obviously one of the biggest economic powers in the world uh, and uh, one of the largest military powers in the world. And uh, its uh, role and influence in world affairs is only going to increase in the 21st century. And uh, we have to find a way to uh, work with China to deal with uh, areas of conflict, uh, but also work together to deal with many common challenges, whether it's climate change, uh, global trade, uh, proliferation. There are no end of, of major global challenges that will require cooperation with China. The Middle East, of course, is always a challenge, no matter what administration's in power. But with the Trump administration uh, and this sort of unpredictability in the recent announcement that Donald Trump is going to pull troops out of Syria, where do you see the Middle East going this year? Well, as many people uh, acknowledged in our recent survey, there's broad concern that the situation is going to deteriorate in the coming 12 months. There are many potential flashpoints from Syria to, to Yemen, rising tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And we have this recent announcement by President Trump that he wants to pull out U.S. forces from Syria. The problem is, is that uh, when we pull out of places, others step in, and that can cause all kinds of problems, which then drag us back in at a later date at uh, greater costs. 
So there's a lot of concern about uh, what uh, President Trump's decision may presage for the region and uh, whether actually this is a good uh, move by the United States. One of the countries that have stepped into the void, of course, is Russia, increasing influence in certainly Syria and the surrounding area. It's also a country that you talk about in your hotspot survey. Where do you see Vladimir Putin's Russia going in 2019? Well, they're clearly worried about their economic situation and uh, failing domestic uh, support for the Putin regime at home. And I think there's broad concern that uh, he may put pressure on Ukraine to distract uh, public opinion at home. Uh, and, um, and we're seeing this already with the recent uh, flare-up in tensions with Ukraine uh, close to uh, uh, Crimea. And I think we can see maybe as we move uh, closer to the Ukrainian elections in March that we might see some uh, heightened uh, sort of cyber influence uh, operations inside uh, uh, Ukraine, some potential meddling in the election that we've seen elsewhere by Russia, and that could be a real uh, source of, um, of tensions between the West and Russia. If you had to pick sort of the single biggest hotspot that Canadians and Americans should keep an eye on in this coming year, what would it be? Uh, the place that most concerns me is uh, either um, a, a, a sort of return to um, heightened tensions on the Korean Peninsula if the so-called nuclear deal with North Korea starts to unravel, then we could see tensions ratcheting up um, in North Korea again this year. The other, I think, uh, sleeper issue is Taiwan. And uh, as we moved into election season there and for 2021, uh, uh, Taiwan could be a much more contentious issue than it has been in the recent past. And that could be a real challenge to both the United States and, and Canada. Paul Starris, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. We're talking about sand and death. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, vast wealth. We're talking about sand and death. That was President Trump last week explaining why he is pulling U.S. troops out of Syria. Next door in Iraq, Canada has about 850 troops. How will the U.S. withdrawal affect our mission in Iraq? Here to talk about that and whether Canada is prepared to deal with threats here at home, someone who knows a thing or two about security in his first television interview since retirement, Lieutenant General Mike Day, the former head of Canada's Special Operations Forces, and of course a former NATO commander too. You watch President Trump quite closely. This very sudden decision to pull out of Syria, Iraq next door, what does it mean for Canadian soldiers on the ground? So, Mercedes, I think we need to understand why we're there to begin with before we understand the consequences of, of his decision. And it's not just the decision, and we can debate the pros and cons of American presence in that whole region. Um, but the consequences, as much as anything, are about how he made the decision, the consultations that obviously didn't take place. Forget with allies, not even within his own team. And so for Canada, what we're seeing is a region that is going to be increasingly left to its own. If America isn't there, it doesn't pull other allies in, it doesn't lead the debate, it doesn't have an impact on the agenda. And as a consequence, there is more chaos, there's more anarchy. And, and that should concern not just Canada, it should concern everybody.
how difficult does it make it for the Canadian military to plan operations? Because we've traditionally been pretty reliant on the Americans and American infrastructure in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's not a sure thing anymore. It isn't. I wouldn't want to overemphasize the impact on the Iraq mission. It's it's a pretty constrained construct. Um, I read ran the similar type approach in Afghanistan. This is a training mission. Um, so the immediate impact of the Americans leaving Syria, I don't think is going to be felt. I don't think it necessarily increases the risk to Canadians. I don't think it increases the difficulty. I'm, I'm not saying either of those are minimal, by the way. I'm just I'm saying the immediate impact isn't there. It's really the larger message uh, that Canada and the world needs to absorb about what we've now come to expect from a, an utter lack of American leadership around the world. When you look here at Canada at home, you had to analyze all kinds of threats, terrorism, cyber. What do you think are the big ones in 2019 that actually threaten Canada or Canada's place in the world? Well, Canada's place in the world is an interesting question, isn't it? And, you know, we've been insulated geographically for so long just based on technology. Um, and so we have a history of believing that we're somewhat protected. But today in the cyber world and the domain that where we're facing threats on, on an hourly moment to moment basis in terms of the world becoming smaller, I think we have to recast our understanding of what a threat to Canada is. Look, we need to think of security in its largest possible sense. Security isn't just protection from military threats, from terrorist threats. Really, security is about the larger construct of protecting our way of life. And Canada does well in the world when the world is the least chaotic possible. And so that's where we need to start from, and we need to look at threats both domestically and, quite frankly, internationally from that perspective, and then decide how do we bring or how do we contribute uh, to the stability of the world as best we can. What do you think those threats are now? If you were back in your old job and, and you were looking at the situation, what would you be concerned about? Well, not just informed by you know previous jobs that I've had, um, both as the you know one of the strategic planners in the department as well as in in our special operations forces, but my time in NATO now, you know, being in the private sector and looking at these things, I think we need to enlarge the aperture. You know, you could make the argument there are really only two existential threats, right? Nuclear holocaust um, and essentially climate change that we're destroying the world. Um, I'm not sure that Canadians um, appreciate, you know, what's happening in the first, and I don't think that that's a, a near and present danger. And in the second, we tend to ignore that as successive governments have, and we just continue our merry way. But, but in a real sense... Uh, we come back to the threats to Canada in terms of Canadian territory. Um, they're not clear and present. I mean, more people die in snowmobile accidents every year than die from terrorist events. So we, we, we tend to respond to fear. We tend to respond to visibility um, as opposed to some of the realities. And so when we talk about those threats, uh, Mercedes, I think we, we just need to have a more informed view. And it's not about the threats just to 2019. It's the threats that Canada's going to face over the next couple of what years. What would those threats be? So we're going to continue to see, I think, a, a, um, 
a failing of liberalism writ large uh, around the Western social democracies of the world, which will add to chaos, which will make the world more uncertain, which will make Canada's security more uncertain, certainly make Canada's trade and economy more uncertain, and that has impact. You're going to see the impact of extreme weather events, not just here at home, uh, I know the chief has talked about that publicly, but quite frankly, in some of the places around the world that have ripple effects. Look, if you took a, a hunger map of the world and you superimposed um, some of the demographics of ages uh, 15 to 25 in the booming populations, and then you looked at extreme weather events, and then you looked at some of the immigration issues that we're facing, and the diasporas, and the mass movement of displaced people, um, all of that leads to instability. Those think, are the sorts of things we're going to face. Do you think the Canadian forces are prepared and have the resources <clears throat> they need to deal with those situations? So, this is always a great question because it presumes you know, that we have to have a finite capacity or capability. Capacity being the number of things we're able to do, how much capability, the types of things. Look, the Canadian forces only needs to be big enough, good enough, well-equipped enough to do what the government tells it to do. So the question I would always return with is, what does the Canadian government want its military to do? Is the military equal not to the threats in the world, but to achieve government policy? And that's a question for the government. Well, Mike Day, that's all the time we have, but thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. Thanks for checking out the West Block podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple podcast, Google podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block Facebook and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.